Hi gang, Bill Creasy here. I've had a wonderful time recording the last 20 episodes of Scripture Uncovered, and I'm delighted that we've found listeners like you who appreciate what we're doing. The podcast is a great way for me to talk directly to you, my students, and listeners. And I look forward to receiving and answering your questions every week. Like any radio program or podcast, significant time and resources go into making each episode of Scripture Uncovered possible. And we want to make the show better and better every week. We're committed to keeping the podcast free for anyone who wants to listen. But now, we're also offering the opportunity to support the podcast. We've launched a page on Patreon, a service that allows patrons, that would be you, to support creators, that would be us, kind of like a digital age version of old world patronage. What's exciting is that we have all kinds of benefits to offer patrons of Scripture Uncovered from free courses in the online classroom to our upcoming webinars launching this September. So go to patreon.com scripture to find out more. By supporting Logos Bible Study and Scripture Uncovered for as little as $10 or $20 a month, we can continue producing the podcast, making it better and more valuable to our listeners every week. And for your support, you'll have access to a whole range of Logos Bible Study material. So go to Patreon, that's P-A-T-R-E-O-N, patreon.com slash scripture. Okay, now it's time for the show. Let's do it. Welcome to Scripture Uncovered, a podcast on the Bible brought to you by Logos Bible Study and logosbiblestudy.com. Now, here's your host, Dr. Bill Creasy. Hello gang, Bill Creasy here with this week's episode of Scripture Uncovered. It has been a very busy week. My brother Bob and his wife Nancy were visiting San Diego for my birthday. Yes, my birthday. And boy, they are really piling up. I can't help but think of the melancholy Jaques in Act 2, Scene 7 of Shakespeare's play, As You Like It. Here's Morgan Freeman playing the part. All the world's a stage, and all the men and women merely players. They have their exits and their entrances, and one man in his time plays many parts, his acts being seven ages. At first the infant, mewling and puking in the nurse's arms. Then the whining schoolboy with his satchel and morning shining face creeping like snail unwillingly to school. Then the lover, sighing like furnace with a woeful ballad made to his mistress's eyebrow. Then a soldier, full of strange oaths, bearded like the pard, jealous in honor, sudden and quick in quarrel, seeking the bubble reputation even in the cannon's mouth. And then the justice, in fair round belly with good cape and lined, with eyes severe and beard of formal cut, full of wise saws and modern instances. And so he plays his part. The sixth age shifts into the lean and slippered pantaloon, with spectacles on nose and pouch on side, his youthful hose well saved, a world too wide for his shrunk shank 
and his big manly voice turning again towards childish treble, pipes and whistles in his sound. Last scene of all that ends this strange eventful history is second childishness and mere oblivion. Sans teeth, sans eyes, sans taste, sans everything. But I'm still in pretty good shape. We're planning another pilgrimage, walking the Camino de Santiago through Spain. That will be our fourth Camino. Now, if you don't know about it, watch the movie The Way with Martin Sheen. And if you'd like to join us, email me through my website, logosbiblestudy.com. We walked our first Camino four years ago, and it was one of the most profound spiritual experiences of my entire life. I'd love to have you join us on the next journey. But back to the topic. Last week was my birthday, and it got me to thinking. All of us came into the world in the very same way with a dramatic exit from our mother's womb. But think about it for a moment. When you were conceived, when did you become you? Well, I would argue from the moment of conception. Think of David in Psalm 139. He writes, For it was you, God, who created my being, knit me together in my mother's womb. I thank you for the wonder of my being, for the wonders of all your creation. Already you knew my soul. My body held no secret from you when I was being fashioned in secret and molded in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw all my actions. They were all of them written in your book. Every one of my days was shaped before one of them came into being. Before we were even conceived, you and I existed in the mind of God. You were you before the beginning of time, precious and wonderful in God's sight. Once conceived and rooted in our mother's wombs, at some point we became sentient, self-aware. A baby stretches and moves around in his or her mother's womb. Well, because it feels good. Now, imagine life in the womb. It's dark, totally, absolutely dark. And the temperature is just right, not too hot or not too cold. You can hear your mother's bodily sounds and maybe sounds from outside like music playing or a sudden clap of thunder. And if you're a twin, there's someone else there. Think of Isaac and Rebekah in the book of Genesis, chapter 25. We read, Isaac was 40 years old when he married Rebekah, the daughter of Bethuel, the Aramean of Padan Aram, and the sister of Laban, the Aramean. Isaac entreated the Lord on behalf of his wife since she was sterile. The Lord heard his entreaty, and his wife became pregnant. But the children jostled each other in the womb so much that she exclaimed, 
oh, if it's like this, why go on living? She went on to consult the Lord, and the Lord answered her, Two nations are in your womb. Two peoples are separating while still within you. But one will be stronger than the other, and the older will serve the younger. Now, when the time of her delivery came, there were twins in her womb. Twins, Jacob and Esau. And God had in mind a destiny for both. Jacob would become the father of 12 sons who were the founders of the 12 tribes of Israel. And Jacob's fourth son, Judah, would become the ancestor of King David and of Jesus himself. Esau would also have 12 sons who would become the founders of the Arab people. And his second son, Kedar, would become the ancestor of Muhammad. <laughs> what a mess all that turned out to be. But you see my point. Before time began, you and I were unique personalities in the mind of God. And from the very moment of conception, you began to be you. Now, imagine in that warm, dark place where all of our needs are cared for. A voice speaks to, speaks to you a still, small voice, perhaps in your mind or deep within your consciousness. And it says, Things are about to change, little one. What do you mean, change? Well, tomorrow you're going to be born. Born? What's born? You're going to be leaving here. Why? Well, because it's time. Well, what's wrong with the way I am? Well, for one thing, you're upside down. But I don't want to leave. I know, but you have to. And then tomorrow comes, and your whole world falls apart. That nice, warm place explodes, and you're pushed and shoved, and you're afraid, and then something grabs hold of you and tugs at you and pulls you, and there are bright lights, and it's cold, and you draw a breath, <gasps> and you scream. It was so nice inside the womb. Why did this terrible thing happen? But once outside the womb, your mother and father embrace you, love you, feed you, teach you, and you make friends, and you play, and you discover the world. I remember several years ago when Every Tuesday afternoon between my morning and evening Logos classes in San Diego, a group of us would meet at La Jolla Shores to go diving. On the way to the beach, we'd stop at Squire's Deli, buy sandwiches, sea salt and vinegar potato chips, pickles, and some Diet Cokes for a picnic on the beach. And then we'd gear up and slip out through the surf for an hour-long dive. In those days, we knew all the fish at the shores by first name. We'd enter the water in front of the bathrooms, kick directly west 
until we triangulated with the bathrooms on the shore and a red-roofed house on the Torrey Pines cliffs. Then we drop straight down 40 feet under the water, take a west bearing, and descend over the ridge of the canyon to about 120 feet under the water. It was the beginning of a perfect dive. I remember kicking out to our drop spot, lying on my back and looking up at a clear blue sky. It was a beautiful day. And as I moved leisurely through the water, a red biplane motored by overhead. A red biplane against an azure blue sky. The smell of the sea, the warmth of the sun, the hum of the single engine overhead. Red biplane against blue sky. I thought to myself, if I were to die right now, that would be just fine. I could not imagine a more perfect moment. In the warm, cozy darkness of the womb, I could never have imagined such a thing. The colors, the sound, the warm breeze, the friends I was with, it was all so magical. Well, we walk across the stage of life, experiencing good moments and bad, tragedy and comedy, love and hate, anger and joy. And yet, we don't want to leave this life. We cling to it, often desperately, much like we didn't want to leave the womb. And yet, we shall. And what will it be like? I suspect that the difference between this life and the next will be on an even greater order of magnitude than our first birth from womb to world. In Dante's Paradiso, he envisions our unique personalities and intellects ascending through nine spheres to the Empyrean, where we are enveloped in the pure light of God. Listen to what Dante describes in Canto 30 of the Paradiso. Like sudden lightning scattering the spirits of sight so that the eye is then too weak to act on other things it would perceive. Such was the living light encircling me, leaving me so enveloped by its veil of radiance that I could see no thing. The love that calms this heaven always welcomes itself with such a salutation to make the candle ready for its flame. Eternity, enveloped in the pure light and love of God, you and I, flickering lights like candle flames. What a fine vision that is. The Lord himself said that he is going ahead of us to prepare a place for us. And we can be sure it will be a very nice place indeed. You're listening to Scripture Uncovered, brought to you by Logos Bible Study and LogosBibleStudy.com. 
Don't forget, you can now support the show on Patreon. Go to patreon.com scripture to find out more about all the great benefits for supporting Scripture Uncovered. Now, back to the show. Here's Dr. Creasy. Well, welcome back, gang. I'd like to turn now to your Bible questions. I'd like to take this segment of the podcast to pick up several questions that have piled up in my inbox. The first is from Jared in Atlanta, Georgia. And Jared writes, If all of humanity is born into a condition of sin, as you say, a condition of alienation and separation from God, and if Jesus is fully human as well as fully divine, wouldn't that necessarily mean that he experienced the condition of sin as well? Well, that's a really good question, Jared, and one that I had to give some thought to in order to answer. Yes, we learned in Genesis chapter 3 that all of us, all of humanity, is born into that condition of sin, that condition of alienation and separation from God that manifests itself in outward sinful action. So if Jesus is fully human, that necessarily means that he must experience the very same temptations that we experience, yet he did not succumb to them. So it's not that Jesus never sinned. He didn't ever sin, but he had a choice. He had a choice to follow the desire to sin or not. So I think the condition of sin, well, the condition of sin is a characteristic of all of humanity. But Christ, though he may have experienced the temptation, never succumbed to that temptation. So I think that's how I'd approach the question. I hope that helps. Thank you for the question though, Jared. And thank you too for being a patron of the podcast by signing up at Patreon. Now, the next question, you said last Friday on the Joe Socorro Show on Relevant Radio that with absolute certainty, Saul, later St. Paul, was in Jerusalem during the Feast of Passover AD 32, or what we call Holy Week. Is this a fact or is it conjecture on your part? How do you know he was there? Well, I think not a conjecture, an informed opinion. Saul of Tarsus was the young rising star in Judaism. Saul of Tarsus. Tarsus is in southeastern Turkey of today. We visited Tarsus not long ago. But Saul left Tarsus and went to Jerusalem to study under the greatest rabbi of his century, Gamaliel. He was an adult student of the great Gamaliel. That's like having a postdoctoral fellowship with a Nobel laureate. Saul lived in Jerusalem. And we learned in Acts that Saul's sister also lived in Jerusalem. In addition, it was Passover. There are three pilgrimage festivals on the Jewish calendar, Passover, Pentecost, and Tabernacles. Passover being the largest of those festivals when all Jews who were able would go to Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover together. If Saul lived in Jerusalem and it's Passover, he almost certainly was there during Holy Week, during Passover. Now, 
the speculation, did Saul encounter Jesus during that time? Well, as I teach the story, I think he did, and that's speculation or conjecture on my part. But I think I defend it pretty well, because Saul, he is the rising star. And when Jesus rode into Jerusalem on Palm Sunday, great crowds were there to greet him, proclaiming him king. Well, he rode down the Mount of Olives, which from its midpoint at the Garden of Gethsemane is only 320 yards away from the temple eastern wall. Saul would have seen him if he was at the temple. He would have seen the crowds on the hillside not far away at all. Would he have wondered, who is this guy? And as the encounter began, what did Jesus do? He went to the temple with a whip and he wrecked the place and he threw people out. And then the next day he came back and the religious leaders sent a delegation to confront him. Now I can't imagine that Saul, the young rising star in Judaism, would not have been there and witnessed all of it if not taken part in it. So I think with near certainty, Saul was in Jerusalem during Passover of AD 32. And I think it's pretty darn certain that he was aware of Jesus during that time and he very well may have taken part in all the events that took place. Thank you for that one. The next is from Carol Bowen. Now I know Carol Bowen. She lives in Brentwood and has been in class with me for a long time, uh, Carol and, and her husband both. And uh, well, as I read the question, I can hear Carol asking it. She writes, if the Holy Spirit is present throughout scripture in both the Old Testament and the New, why all the fuss about the Holy Spirit arriving on the Jewish feast of Pentecost, AD 32? If the Holy Spirit has been here the entire time, why the emphasis on his arrival at that particular time? Well, that's a Carol question for sure. <laughs> and and I, think, I think I have a good answer for it. When we look at scripture from Genesis all the way through the book of Revelation, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit is on every single page of scripture from Genesis 1 all the way through Revelation 22. But think of the story of the Bible as a play on a stage. The entire play takes place. Various characters enter and exit. But there are three characters who are always on the stage. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. But in the Hebrew Scriptures, the Old Testament, God the Father steps forward to the front of the stage, and he's the dominant figure of the Trinity throughout the Hebrew Scriptures. When we turn the page to Matthew, in the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, God the Father steps back and God the Son steps forward. God the Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, is the dominant figure throughout the Gospels. And then we turn the page to Acts, God the Son steps back and God the Holy Spirit steps forward. God the Holy Spirit 
is the dominant figure in the book of Acts all the way through, through the book of Revelation. And indeed, God the Holy Spirit is the dominant figure even today. The Holy Spirit is the engine driving the church. The Holy Spirit guides, shapes, and directs the church all throughout history. So I think, yes, God the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are constantly present on stage. But at different points in the story, one of the three figures steps to the fourth stage and dominates the action. Hope that helps, Carol. I look forward to seeing you again real soon. The next question, if Mary was a virgin and continued to be a virgin after Jesus' birth, who are the brothers of the Lord that are mentioned in Scripture? Well, that's a good question and one that I get all the time in class. The brothers are even named. So who are the brothers? The Greek word is Adelphos, and Adelphos is literally a blood brother. But Adelphos can also be a member of the extended family. If we take the position <clears throat> that Mary was a virgin when she conceived Jesus, and that she remained a virgin for the rest of her life, then who could those brothers be? Well, if you were an evangelical Protestant, you would say that Mary was a virgin when she conceived Jesus, but after Jesus was born, she and Joseph went on to have a normal married life and had other children. That's what you would believe as an evangelical Protestant. If you were an Orthodox Christian, Greek Orthodox, Russian Orthodox, Coptic, you would say that Mary was a virgin when she conceived Jesus and that Mary continued being a virgin for the rest of her life. The brothers of the Lord are Joseph's sons who were born to Joseph and his wife who was now deceased. So Joseph was a widower when he married Mary and the brothers of the Lord are his sons. That's what you would believe if you were an Orthodox Christian. As Roman Catholics, we believe that Mary was a virgin when she conceived Jesus and that Mary continued to be a virgin for the rest of her life. The brothers of the Lord in that case would be those in his extended family, his cousins, if you will. And that was the solution that St. Jerome proposed uh, when he worked in translating the scriptures. So who are the brothers of the Lord? Well, how, whatever position we take, Mary was most certainly a virgin when she conceived Jesus. And I think it's a strong argument that she remained a virgin for the rest of her life. After all, when Jesus was on the cross and he gave Mary to John and John to Mary, well, John was Jesus' cousin, but if there were blood brothers, well, he wouldn't have given Mary to John. Next, we have a question from Philip Howard in Glasgow, Scotland. Philip writes, it says in Genesis 22, the sacrifice of Isaac story, that Abraham took the wood for the burnt offering. But burnt offerings are not prescribed until Leviticus chapter 1. So how did Abraham know about burnt offerings? Well, good question, Philip. Burnt offerings occur 
in virtually every ancient religion. Not just Judaism. Yes, burnt offerings, the five great sacrifices in Leviticus chapters 1 through 5, the burnt offering, grain offering, peace offering, sin offering, and guilt offering, four of which are animal sacrifices, occur other places too. In fact, when we, we read Homer's The Iliad or The Odyssey, burnt offerings are made to the Greek gods. In Egypt, burnt offerings were made to the Egyptian gods. It was a standard feature of ancient religion in the Mesopotamian and Mediterranean world. So it wasn't something unusual. Of course, Abraham didn't know about the offerings being prescribed in Leviticus because Leviticus had not yet been written. But he did know that the gods, all the gods, required burnt offerings. Thanks for the question, Philip. Next, we have not a question, but a comment from Robert Barn via the internet. And Robert writes, Bill made a minor error in his Story of King David course in the online classroom. There he said that David moved his capital north from Hebron to Jerusalem as concession to the 10 northern tribes. Much like after the Revolutionary War, the American capital was situated in the District of Columbia rather than Philadelphia, as a concession to the southern states, particularly Virginia. At the time, Robert continues, Bill said that Washington, D.C. was carved out of Virginia. It wasn't. The original boundaries of the District of Columbia were a 10-mile square diamond on the Potomac with the northeast portion coming from Maryland and the southwest portion coming from Virginia. The way the math worked, says Robert, was that 69 square miles of Maryland and 31 miles from Virginia made up the District of Columbia. But as things turned out, DC never expanded into the Virginia portion and the unused portion was returned to Virginia. So today, writes Robert, all of D.C. is on land contributed only by Maryland. Thank you for the correction, Robert. I've always said in class, if I'm teaching and I say something that's wrong, let me know. I don't want to be passing on bad information. So I really appreciate the time that you took, Robert, to correct me on that. And you're right, it was a minor, minor note in the Story of David course. But a good correction. I will correct it henceforth. I've really enjoyed being with you today and look forward to next week. So see you then. God bless all of you. Bye-bye. You've been listening to Scripture Uncovered, brought to you by Logos Bible Study and LogosBibleStudy.com. To submit your text or audio questions, email us at online at LogosBibleStudy.com. That's online at LogosBibleStudy.com. And check out Scripture Uncovered on Patreon, a great service that allows you to support the show so that we can continue bringing valuable programs to you week by week. There are all kinds of benefits for supporting the show, including free online courses in the Logos Online Classroom. Go to patreon.com, that's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash scripture to learn more. Patreon.com slash scripture. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next week.